Welcome to the Carrier's Edge podcast. I think we're at 82. 82. 82. I'm Jane Jazrawi, co-founder and CEO of Carrier's Edge. And with me, as always, is... Mark Morado. <laughs> this is this is the nature of today. Yes. And yes. where we're at right now. Let me try that again to see if I can actually say my own name properly. My name is Mark Morell. And we are in the middle of the crazy time of Best Fleets. So we only have one brain cell between us. Yes. And yeah, it's like the, I think the end of, so next week is the last week of interviews and this is the crazy time. Final push. And it's been even crazier because we've been trying to train a bunch of people to do the interviews and two of them got sick. Yes. So we had to take the interviews that they had, which is, we are the backup, but we had two people sick and I'm kind of glad that we had so many that. Oh, and one on vacation for a big chunk of it too. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's been uh, it's been nutty in a different way, a totally different way than usual. It's always crazy at this time of year, usually crazy with busy. And uh, often there are times where we need to shuffle around interview assignments because we discover that somebody is overloaded. They've got too much and other people really don't have much that ended up happening for them. But this year it's just uh, it's been shuffling because people are sick yeah, or they lose their voice or uh, yeah. Yeah. On and on. Well, this sickness that makes you get, you know, affects your voice has hit three of our staff. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. And it's a cold, like it's the flu, but it's a voice flu. It's weird. It's like the voice flu. The voice flu. The voice flu. That has happened to everybody with children who are attending school. Yes. Curse you, public school system. Yeah. And unless you hide in another room, you're, you're susceptible. Yeah. What does that say about the people, little kids that haven't got sick yet? That they are. Yeah, what does that say about their parenting? Uh, I think that they're not the primary caregiver. Maybe I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't be trashing them. Yeah. Well, it's um, it is it's a pain when you have little kids, and when everybody is sick, then you are sick too. At least one member of your household is sick, and it gets who it gets. I mean, often there's you know, um, M- Michelle, for example, who who just was sick. A lot of the time, her husband's sick. Mm. So it's, it, you know, because her daughter is sick yeah, all the time. She's, I think, around four or five. And um, yeah. And then we were talking about yesterday about how um, one of our lead develop our senior developers, John, when his kids were little, it was like he was off all the time because his kids were sick. So I don't think it's a gender thing. I think it's just a... It's one of those things they don't tell you before you have kids. <laughs> like nobody tells you that. They're like, oh, you got to have kids. They're so awesome. You know, you're so great. And then people make cracks about changing diapers and how nasty that is. But... Diapers are like, that's two years and then you're done. That is also the least of, you know, diapers is. Yeah, diapers and no sleep. Okay, but that ends. This whole business of like kids, uh, you know, passing around sickness, it seems to be like how the whole society builds up its immunities is passing around all of these things. And so much of it is uh, happening worse this year because kids are in schools without masks and they're passing around a lot more than they have been for the past few years and immunities are down and blah, blah, blah. And it really is worse. And RSV, this whole, I mean, I'd heard of RSV because my son or our son got a vaccination for it when he, he was a preemie and there was a vaccination. And at the time, this was 2000, I just was like, yeah, okay. Yeah, whatever. Yeah, because, well, he was a preemie. And so the pediatrician thought that it would be a good idea because, you know, to help with their lung development. Well, the vaccine didn't help with the lung development. But, you know, as you're waiting to develop your lungs properly, 
this can help, you know, you don't have to suffer with the RSV because apparently it's very bad for little ones and the older elderly. Mm. Um, so I knew about it, but then I didn't didn't hear about it again. And well, every so often, like every five or six years, there'd be a mention of RSV somewhere and I'd be like, oh, yeah, that thing. Mm-hmm. But I mean, the how much everybody's getting it and it's being passed around is just like this thing that you're getting now. Yeah. Um, so I don't know where the vaccination for RSV went, but I wonder if they're going to bring it back or resurrect it to give to kids. Yeah. will be interesting to see. It wasn't part of. It was definitely not part of the regular vaccination series hmm. that, you know, kids go through with typhoid and measles and all of that stuff. Hmm. Anyway, that's a not really. Probably not. Sorry. Apologies to everybody. Brain is one brain cell. And now back to our program. Yeah. <laughs> Best Fleets interviews. So it looks like uh, I just checked this morning. We have 100 booked. Uh, so I think there may be one or two that squeak in next week, but that's probably going to be where we end up. And I think where we where we at or about fifty or fifty five that have been finished. So uh, which means we're going to end up. No, wait, is that right? Oh, because there's some that aren't marked complete from yesterday and today's interview. So we'll end up doing about forty of those probably next week because that's when everybody wants to do it. Next week. Yeah, but we've got most of the team back and up and running, so it's not that bad. Heather and Trish and Val will be back. Yeah. Okay, that'll be good because I think I have four booked. Yeah, I think I've got I've got about five or six. Everybody okay. has got. I mean, if you have a, enough people, you everybody's doing four or five or six. It's not that terrible mm-hmm. uh, when you got enough people on there. So yeah, it's uh, it's come along pretty nicely. Uh, we've got a bunch of people that have learned an awful lot <laughs> in a very short period of time. And I find that I'm not actually doing a lot of the interviews. Uh, I've got a, a handful that are, are mine that I've been assigned directly and some that I've taken on from others. But most of my involvement is reviewing other people's notes. So as the uh, the fleets uh, get ready for their interview, they submit their questionnaire. We have the designated interviewer go through and make notes on things to follow up on. I read through all of that as well and, and check on it and maybe add some other notes or clarify some things. So mostly what I'm doing is kind of reading through the questionnaires and looking at the notes that they're that they've flagged or things that they want to ask and doing it myself. So I'm getting sort of the benefit of seeing a lot of these things. You know, I may be doing six reviews, six or seven fleet reviews in a day. Uh, so I'm getting a really good sense of different things without actually talking to anybody about it. So there are some interesting things that I've noted. I know you found some things that you saw um, that are coming up. One thing that has uh, jumped out to me, and it might just be the sort of collection of fleets that I've been reviewing, uh, I finally sort of realized that HR has arrived in trucking. <laughs> which is very interesting because for years... Nobody that we talked to in the Best Fleets program had an HR title or background. It was safety or recruiting or driver services, but not really HR. Yeah. There were HR people in the company. Yeah, in the company, but they only did the office. They didn't talk to drivers. Yeah. So what's changed, I've really noticed it this year, uh, more of what I would call the modern titles, job titles, and it's not really called HR. The uh, More broadly now, it's referred to as human capital management or talent management or um, you know, sort of ongoing people development. So I'm seeing those kind of titles, the head of people and culture, people and development, yeah. um, you know, head of people, those kind of things, which never saw really before. So all of a sudden, tracking has sort of come into the, the current period with where HR needs to be and 
those people are dealing with drivers as well. And it certainly comes through in the type of things that the companies are doing and the programs that they're offering for their drivers. You know, it isn't just, well, we have an open door and, you know, we want to hear their feedback if they say something. Now it is formalized programs. It is an effort to figure out what's working and what's not working, to include people, a whole bunch of things like that. So I found that kind of interesting. What I'm kind of noticing is, um, well, there's a stepped up effort. There is definitely the... Oh, yeah. The quality of questionnaire is like... I made a note of that, like maybe the second week. It was like, wow, these people are stepping it up. These people are really working it. I, I think I did. I think I got there before you because I think I remember saying something to you about it. Yes, you said it. And I was like, yep, I've noticed that. And it was one of those things where I think I had noticed it, but wasn't conscious of it until you said it. And then it was like, yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. So there are some fleets that the difference between last year and this year is insane. Uh, it's just, you know, oh, we did the, we've got a new program, we got a new program, not got a new program. You know, we were, we did this, we talked to these drivers and we did this and this and this. And it's not just the new programs that are there. It's the evidence that there's been a lot of driver involvement in figuring out what they want to do. Yes. And that's really, I mean, that's the key. I did have a brief exchange uh, with one company that we talked to and there's a, and I'm doing an interview where somebody else has mentioned it, um, just of being slow to change and that everybody, you know, if, if we do this, then we're going to be just like everybody else. Kind of insinuating that to be in best fleets, you have to do all of, you have to answer the questions with a predefined set of things that we're going to think is OK. That <laughs> our judgment is that you have to have your carrier, your company a, a, run a certain way. And that's the only way that you can win or you can be on the top 20. And that is really not the case. Well, it is in a very broad sense, but there's no specific right answer to any question. No. No. In fact, if you give a completely different answer to a question than I've ever heard, I'm usually fascinated. Oh, yeah. I'm usually, oh, my God, this is great. We ask the questions based on what fleets are doing. And it's not necessarily that we ask questions because we think it's going to be the right answers. It's just that we see the industry going a certain way and we want to know what individual carriers are doing about it. So if we see, I'm going to go back to cyber, you know, the old horse uh, that were just beaten to death, uh, cybersecurity, we're going to ask about cybersecurity because you guys are talking about it. Like trucking, you're talking about cybersecurity. It would be insane for us not to ask about or it. Or getting hit by ransomware attacks on a weekly basis. Yeah. Or, you know, ELDs are now a mandate, in, are going to be a mandate in Canada next month. And they were a mandate a couple of years ago. Well, we're going to ask about technology. We're going to ask you how you choose your technology, because sometimes it seems like people just get on a bandwagon. So, okay, so... Or they just buy the first thing that a sales rep sells them. Or the cheapest or the most flashy or it doesn't seem, you know, we wanted to know what the thought process was behind it. Doesn't mean that there's a right or wrong answer. It just means that we want to know the thought process. And if you have no thought process, that's not good. Yeah. <laughs> you have a piece of software you're going to roll out to 400 people. Did you think about asking them what they thought? Well, that's a kind of interesting point that, yeah, there's no right answer to the question, but there are definitely some wrong answers. And the wrong answer is always, we haven't really put any thought into it. Yeah. And, uh, or we're doing it without involving drivers, even though it directly affects them. 
yeah, those are kind of the wrong answers. Now, that comes off sounding pretty harsh because realistically, everybody is going to have some questions that they haven't put any thought into. There's no way you could put a lot of thought into all these questions. Well, I think the people who are in the Hall of Fame or the top 20, like for many, many years, have seen the same questions over and over again. And and what I see with them is that they choose not to do certain things. They don't want to. And so they're not going to. They're going to do all the things that they want to do. And but they will sacrifice their four or five points in, you know, whatever question it is, because they don't feel that it's right for their company. Yeah. And that's perfectly fine. Yeah. You know, the the day cab fleets. Well, they don't have great terminals. They're not going to create a great terminal for the fire, you know, whatever, whatever points we give them for that one question. For people the, that are there 20 minutes a day. Yeah, they're not going to invest in that. So, OK, fine. What are you going to invest in? Well, you're going to invest in, you know, other parts of like. They invest in a business model that gets people home every night. And that's great. So, you know, we have to account for so many different ways or so many different types of businesses. So you've got the people who are home every night, the people who are out for two or three weeks and there's no, you know, that's it. We have the people who operate reefers, the people who operate flatbeds. That's a totally different experience. So I was uh, talking to somebody yesterday that's a fuel hauler and uh, yeah, hardly any miles that their drivers run because like their average length of haul was like 18 miles because they have so many stops in a day. Oh, and also um, I reviewed uh, a livestock hauler and... Yeah, totally different. Yeah, work. and hard to keep people because it's a lot of very hard, not very sexy work. Like this is not, you know, well, it's livestock. Yeah. It, how much fun is that? It can be dirty and smelly. Yeah. So I think this is the first time we've had, I think there's two livestock haulers hmm. that I've seen. There's one who... There's a livestock hauler, but I don't know how alive they are. Well, I don't think they want to haul dead livestock. That's probably not right. It's not livestock then. Yeah, exactly. It's dead stock. I don't know. I can't. I just remember seeing a word that just made it. There was a, I have to go and look at it again. We're at that point where we can barely remember the individual. There's so many different things that are happening and it's all a, a, a blur. So yes. you, you start to see some of the larger trends emerge. Like yeah. I've noticed um, the different HR roles that are coming in. You're noticing some things. Um, now, we had an interesting discussion this morning. You mentioned cybersecurity and we had talked about how I, I'm finding really interesting that fleets have finally started training their drivers on cybersecurity stuff. And we've been talking about cybersecurity for years and we've been asking, like, are you doing anything for the drivers? And no, no, no. And this year, finally, I would say not a, a vast majority, but just tipping under the side of the majority of the fleets that I talk to are including drivers in cybersecurity training. And that's fabulous because drivers are just as susceptible as anybody else. They're just as much targeted as anybody else. And there are a lot of ways where drivers can be compromised that ends up hurting the fleet if those drivers are not educated. And so it's great to see fleets actually including drivers in it. It also means that uh, there are more fleets that are actually having drivers part of their network because that was the argument before is drivers aren't part of the network, uh, so they don't need to be trained. But I'm starting to see people where the drivers are part of the network and they're getting trained, which is great. But nobody ever mentions it. Like it doesn't occur to them to say it until we ask. We, when, we, when they say they're doing training. And we've learned to ask when they say all employees. Yeah. They don't include, like, I would say 75% when they say all employees, they mean 
everyone but drivers. Yeah. Now you're finding kind of the opposite. That you're still seeing a lot of people that don't include drivers. And it's that whole drivers aren't part of our network. Yeah. Well, they just use tablets and the tablets can't be compromised. So. Right. But there's so many other reasons to train drivers. Like, Well, also, I come back to, like, you just told me that you treat everybody like family and you're one big happy family. But then you've got this giant wall. You know, you used to be a physical wall with a stupid driver window in it. And now everybody's torn those down and people actually have access. But now it's a virtual wall. Yeah. Yeah. So. And the thing is, is that you can get, they all talk to their dispatchers via text. Mm-hmm. You know, you can get hacked through a text. If a driver is compromised yeah, and ends up with a hacked mm-hmm. hacked phone or hacked email, yeah, that can end up being a problem for the fleet. And actually, we heard one, uh, I don't know if you saw this in the uh, the Slack channel where we all share the things that we're, we're learning, but uh, Trish had one where somebody had um, been compromised, a company had been compromised because somebody pretended to be the driver and got them to reroute the pay. Oh! I did see that. That was like last night or the night before or something like that. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a perfect way to do it. Like yep. Pretend to be the driver and dispatchers are like, blah, 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 blah. They don't care or I'm sure they care, but they're like so busy that there is just one of this series of requests that come in. And that's what happens with phishing is that they're assume or they're hoping that you are so busy getting through your email that you're just going to respond to a message without thinking about it. Yeah. And that's how they get you. What I find really interesting is the approach to cybersecurity has been, okay, it's phishing email to people in the office. Mm-hmm. That is the only thing that is Really, when you're talking about people, we all, all we have to do is train people on phishing email and we'll just send out a bunch of crazy email to people in the office and see if they click on it. And then if they click on it, then they're punished with training. More punishment by training. Yep. And OK, fine. That's that's fine. And then the whole back office thing, I think for next year, I want to like just disregard the whole back office thing and just focus on, OK, what are you doing with your people? Like, yeah. how are you? Because cybersecurity, 90 percent of cybersecurity is trying to minimize the human behavior that puts you at risk. Yeah, exactly. That's really that's really what it boils down to. And, you know, making people change their passwords that's fine, but there's so many better ways than just, okay, you got to change your password every week. Well, that's not cybersecurity. That's just punishing people. And they're just going to start putting one, two, three at the end of their, or, you know, I was talking to um, a fleet at one point about talking about changing passwords. And that's just the worst way to handle cybersecurity. It really is. Well, it totally bypasses the education component, like an informed workforce will do way better than people that are just given a bunch of stupid rules. Yeah. And, you know, what tools are you giving people to manage that kind of thing? How many passwords do people have that they have to deal with? Well, it always reminds me of uh, the great, uh, great example from back when we used to do custom work for a gas station business. And uh, we had a customer that had large, large uh, chain of gas stations across the country. And they were very proud of how secure their networks were because every one of those stations had a a machine. And even though they were franchised, they had a machine that connected to the network um, for all of the uh, the retailers. And then each 
you know, each franchisee or site manager could go in and do the things that they needed to do through the corporate network. And it was super secure. It had two-factor authentication way back years ago, and they had an RSA key that people had to use in order to get in. But the reality of the world is that there are multiple people that need to log in, and there's only one RSA key uh, on, the, on each site. So they just took it and taped it to the monitor. Uh, so every site I went into had this RSA key taped into the monitor. So anybody that sat down at that machine had the password sitting there right in front of them. They just type it in, they go in. So all you needed to do was to, if you wanted to break into that, take a picture. Well, or just go and sit or there. Just, yeah. right? Anybody who walked into that back office could have access to it. So it totally defeated the purpose of all of the security that they'd done by having these randomized passwords and all of these other things that are super secure. Well, they're not, right? The practicality ended up defeating all of it. So people will always find a way to uh, be more practical and you know, bypass these things if they're inconvenient. I wonder if that's still around. Yeah. So now I'm thinking about why, like taking a picture of the RSA key, which the whole point of it is that it changes the codes. So mm. my apologies. One brain cell, <laughs> yeah. one brain cell going. I'll say, I have to say things and then I have to evaluate them after yeah. I've said them. <laughs> so what things are you noticing? Anything else is jumping out at you? I have noticed, and I talked to you about this this morning, is that it seems the the sense that I'm getting, and this is something I think I'd like to build on over the next year, is that people do a lot of evaluation of drivers. Mm-hmm. There's a lot, mm-hmm. but they don't do a lot with that evaluation. How do you mean? Well, so there's scorecards. Right. And there are a lot of people who are using Samsara and they have this driver score and... Um, uh, but there's other, all these other systems can produce scorecards. There are scorecard, like scorecards are everywhere in the industry. And the question that we always have is, okay, so how do you, you know, how much do you talk to the, like, do you have performance reviews? Do you do annual reviews? How much are you talking to the driver? And I would say the most common answer is we do it on a continual basis. Yeah. Which means they're not doing it. Well, what it means is when the driver does something wrong, we correct them. Yeah. Exception based. Yes. So this has been going on for a while and I'm kind of seeing this year after year. I know there are some and 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 when they talk about the scorecards they're talking it from the management point of view. So and but they don't that's not what it comes across as. So it's taken me a little while to kind of come to this realization is that wait a minute. You're assessing all these people but you're not talking to the people about the assessment. And it's kind of like when you go through great, when you're a parent and your kids go through school and you get these report cards and now the report cards have the comments are, you, you know, I know that the teachers get a number of them to choose from and they're all like, you know, perfectly correct language and they say nothing. Yeah. I mean, I did those comments. I didn't, I had to make them up because I was a teacher in the dark ages in the nineties, in the early nineties. And, um, but now I can interpret them. I know what they're trying to say, but someone who hasn't done teacher training isn't going to really know. So it really means nothing. So I know that people don't understand their evaluations. They don't, like a driver, I'm when I say people, I'm talking about drivers, they don't necessarily know when they have a high or a low score in something, they don't know what it means. And they don't know what to do about it necessarily. They know how to follow the directions or not follow the directions of a safety director or dispatcher or whoever is talking to them, but they don't have a general sense of how they're doing within the rest of the fleet. They don't have a sense of what is going to increase their performance level and what isn't because nobody talks to them about it. Yeah. Nobody says, you know, you're really, really good at this, but 
so say, okay, let me give you an example. So say someone is really, really good at fuel mileage. Like they, they drive slowly. They don't have a lead foot. It's great. Their MPGs are amazing, but they have, their log books are kind of, no, maybe not log books, but their paperwork is iffy. Mm-hmm. But in the general scorecard, it balances out and you don't ever really, you don't have to say anything because yeah, they're fine. They're fine. So that person never really knows that their, their paperwork is, eh, and that could be better. So if you do a review with someone and look at every single part of it, then you can talk about, you can talk about best practices. You can talk about, you know, okay, you're excellent at this. Why are you excellent? Like, you know what? That's great. How do you, how do you do it? How do you, do you think you could mentor somebody? Like they don't, I don't feel like trucking is taking the opportunity to really discuss evaluations with their with their drivers. And I think it's because they don't know how. Yeah. I would say that's a really good observation. I've noticed if you think about sort of the history of things for a while, they had no data. And it was that question. We never really got much in the way of answers. It would be, you know, there might be an annual performance review with the driver. A lot of people didn't even do that. There was a few early adopters that were doing some scorecards in the sort of post CSA world. Uh, and then all of a sudden in the last three years or so, just this flood of data has become available to them. And, and we observed last year that so many of them have started just doing something with all this data. They're taking all this data and sharing it out to the drivers and kind of that's it. You know, the pendulum has swung. They've got so much information. They're just dumping all of this stuff out there. Management is on top of all of these things. Drivers get this mountain of, of data. And what they haven't figured out how to do is balance those things. Right. It's, it can't just be a flood of data handed to the driver. It's got to be some sort of personal connection. And you observed a bit of that last year. And I think we're still seeing it this year is that performance management really is looked at through the lens of the management team and what they need versus what's going to actually be helpful for the driver, you know, through the eyes of the driver and what will help the driver. And that's a place where there's a real gap is people don't understand how to help a driver improve their own performance other than dump a bunch of information on them and let them deal with it. Let them make it, uh, you know, their own mind up. Well, it's also, but I think there's a, a gap as well as what you can do with a performance review. If you have a stellar employee, you should still talk to them mm-hmm. and you should still keep talking to them because what do they want to do? Yeah. You know, talk to them about what they want. Not, not necessarily about what you want. Talk to them about what they want. That's another good point because so much of performance management has really been about corrective action. One of my least favorite phrases in the whole industry is all about basically spanking people for all their mistakes. Yep. Instead of having a conversation with that person about their aspirations, where they want to go with their career, what they're doing well, what they see uh, in the company that can be changed or improved, like all of these things that can come up through performance review. And so the industry kind of needs to get used to the fact that they have a ton of data, figure out how to have a conversation with people and not always be just about spanking people for every little mistake they make. Or it should really be about um, handling the positive performances and sharing that and saying, hey, you're really good at these things. Maybe you should be a, a trainer. Maybe you should dry, join our committee on these things. Well, then it will be, I don't want to say surprise. What happens is that people will, uh, companies will say, oh, and we just hired this person off the road and now they're in the office. And it's like, well, okay, that seems to be a natural path, but everybody talks about it like it's this special occurrence. Mm. And it shouldn't be. It should be if people are drivers and they're good at what they do and they have a lot of attention to detail, why wouldn't they be in safety? 
that Mm -hmm. makes total sense. I think what's the jump is surprising to people because and even to themselves is that they didn't realize because they weren't having the conversations all the time. As you know, you can only realize what people want to do and what people are good at if you talk to them about their aspirations all the time and find out when they change and find out, you know, how you can be a part of it and that kind of thing. And that's what a an annual review is for is like, okay, so here's how you're doing. How are we doing? What do you want to do? And that those are really the questions that that's a a part of HR that hasn't really hit tracking yet. I think it's probably in the office, but it's not for the drivers. And that's mostly because there isn't a career path and that there hasn't been a career path. So individual companies have to figure it out on their own, but they don't ask the drivers what they want to do because there's a lot of different things. And I want to also dig into the lease op- owner operator, like the, le- the lease purchase programs of um, some of these companies and figure out what education they're doing around it. Like, so you have a lease op- uh, lease purchase. I want to say lease op. I don't know why. Lease purchase pr- uh, process so that people can become an owner operator. How do they get in? How many, six, like in the last year, how many people have paid off their truck? What education do you do? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a question we should add. If you have a lease purchase plan, what's your success rate? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What's your screening process? How many people have paid off? How many people have walked away or failed or, or, or bailed out on the thing? Yep. Yeah. And I want to put that in the, uh, and especially in the contractor one. Yes. So, but we should do it in the regular one, but also in, because everybody's selling their trucks to, to drivers. Mm-hmm. I've been thinking about this um, for a few years now. Um after talking to people who are vehemently against lease purchase programs and think that it's just a rip off to the drivers, I heard something this year about selling them at a pro- like you know selling them for more than they bought them for. So it's kind of a profit center. And I'm thinking, well, you actually mm. were the one who brought up, well, are they selling them to the drivers? Yeah, <laughs> are you making a profit off the drivers? That so I'm thinking, hmm, okay. So digging into that, mm-hmm. I don't know how much information we're gonna get. Yeah, well, that will be something. That I don't know if anybody else is tracking that. Like, what is the industry doing as far as lease purchase plans? And what do the success rates look like? You know, what is considered a good success rate? We don't even know. That's one of those places where we can have sort of an open set of questions. And then from there, it's like, let's see what is actually happening. I was looking at a, I was um, sort of looking into a company um, a couple of days ago, and I was watching some of the videos of their driver testimonials. And one of them was saying, I, you know, I I tried doing a lease purchase twice and failed twice. And I'm thinking that second time, you probably shouldn't have done it. Like who was giving you a truck after you failed already? Well, why did you fail each time? Well, well, that's the thing. You start, okay, you fail once. Fine. People fail once. But before you start the second time, you need to understand fully why you failed, mm-hmm. what you can do to change that and keep an eye on it. And that's really important. Yeah. And have a plan. And yeah, what is the company doing to set you up for success? Are they working with you on budgeting? <laughs> I don't think so. But there are, I mean, do you have a, how's, how does the escrow work? Do you, mm-hmm. does the company set aside and do you have a program? Do you have any other support systems? Is there, are there, do you have mentors? Do you have people you can call? It's just, I know that there are some very, very um, thorough lease purchase programs out there. Like I think I'm thinking Farm to Fleet and Landstar and those kind of companies. But I also know that there are, we just don't ask about it. So who knows what people are doing? Yeah, I think it's definitely something that we need to ask more about. 
Sorry, guys. Another question. On the contractor questionnaire, which is shorter now, so we've got room to yeah. make it more painful for people. Yeah. So, yeah, that's good. Good idea. There we go. It also gives us a sense of, more of a sense of how things work in the company, about how people move from lease purchase to owner-operator or, you know, or lease purchase to owner-operator to operating under your own authority. Mm-hmm. Because that's, uh, that's the goal, right? Is to operate under your own authority. And then grow the truck count and eventually have thousands of trucks and take the company public and... And then buy a boat. Well, you buy many boats along the way there. <laughs> Gotta have a boat. Yeah. I don't want need a boat, but I think you would like a boat. I like boats. I know you like boats. Yeah. And, uh, but I digress. Mm-hmm. As we have a few times, but we are deep into Best Fleets interviews. So I don't know if there's much else happening that isn't Best Fleets related at this point. Um, there's lots of content stuff happening. Ah. Outside of me, we have finished our TDG revamp that we're going to be releasing in the new year. We have to get it translated uh, first. And so that's that's going to happen. Um, it's also going to get all re-recorded, and it's going to it, it's going to incorporate the new regs for the or potentially well, we've we're trying to design it this way to make sure that we've got the general awareness and the specific stuff which only applies to Canada. We've just did a revamp of our um, hazmat course because uh, we're doing it in Spanish, so there's going to be a Spanish one coming out uh, very soon. We are also. Oh, what else is coming out? Well, personal security is nearly ready. We've also got, we're working on, we're actually working on some leadership courses. Mm. So that's going to be interesting that we'll have some stuff for, for the staff rather than just the drivers. Kind of for everybody. Yeah. And so we're working on that. Um, the tanker courses are progressing. So we've got vehicle inspection for tankers. We're going to have defensive driving for tankers as well as our injury prevention. And um, uh, we also had food hauling for tanker like bulk, mm-hmm. uh, bulk food safety. Um, so, yeah, all of that stuff is kind of, you know, working its way through the system. Mm-hmm. And so when we finish our TDG, our general TDG course, we're going to have one for fuel haulers. So we've already started working on that one. And really what we're doing is it's basically TDG for class three. Hmm. And that'll be our first TDG for a specific class. But we're going to look at we're going to be doing other ones that are for more specific classes. Is there a U.S. version of that, too? The U.S. is the way they do it is it's different. You have to do everything all the time. Yeah, the endorsement. But would there be value in doing sort of a course specifically for fuel haulers because they have the same kind of issues, very specific type of work? Um, absolutely. Because... Well, I'm just thinking about one of the companies that I interviewed this week was a fuel hauler and they have a very detailed set of operating procedures that they give to all their new hires that are really related to getting in and out of gas stations properly. Because you have to get in from a particular uh, side in order to position properly and how to prevent injury, how to make sure that you're not setting yourself up for a problem and that you can get out. And there's a lot of that stuff that I think is common to everybody who's a fuel hauler. So it might be that you do a TDG for fuel haulers and then there's a generic fuel hauler best practices. Well, that's part of defensive driving because defensive driving, we went through this whole um, process where we're like, okay, well, what about the parking? Yeah. You know, what do you do with a tanker? And, and basically you don't 
you basically pull in, <laughs> you know, you pull in and, and a straight back is really all you do. You don't do 45 degrees and you don't do 90 degrees and you don't parallel park and you don't do any of those because you're basically either backing up and positioning yourself against, um, well, you're just positioning yourself against either the fuel or the station that you're delivering it to. There's really no other... So if you're a tanker that isn't fuel, I guess you have the same thing because it's not, you don't load out the back, you load from the side. You load from the top. Right, but it's middle, right? It's sort right. of, it's not at the back. It's sort of in the middle of the trailer. I believe, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, it's around, it's the middle, yeah. And then you unload from the hoses. Right. So you basically go park beside the, wherever the mm. drain, not the drain, but the opening is, and that's what you do. So these are things that we needed to get our t- our regular TDG done first before we could do the fuel stuff. But now that we have, we kind of have a good idea of how the regular one goes and now we can look at fuel. And the other part is the shipping docu- document is different mm. because they're, when they unload and fuel haulers probably all know this, but when you unload, you basically are changing the the number, like how full your tank is. Right. So you start with a full tank with a certain number of liters or gallons or whatever it is. And then as you deliver, you have to go and redo, like basically cross out the number and put in a new number. And, um, and then it's residue last contained, I think, at the end of it. But that shipping document process is kind of the same as everybody else's because if you change the amount you have to change it on the shipping document but there is a definite process and you have to do it for each compartment hmm. in a in a in a tanker and also you have to figure out how to placard your placard all your compartments so that's kind of those are the things that we're putting into the new course interesting yeah wow getting really into the sort of specialized content for different types of uh, trailers I notice. Well, it's missing. Yeah. You know, everybody does, everything is, is van, you know, yeah. and sometimes flatbed, but you know, the generic, the generic thing is a van. And when you're our customer base, well, we were looking for small and medium fleets and, and those fleets, large fleets probably have their own training in house and you can train on every specific specific type of trailer that you have and you probably have your own standard operating procedures and whatever when you get into the smaller fleets if you have a fleet if you have 30 trucks and you do all tankers and there's nothing publicly available like there's nothing on the mass market there's you can't you're pretty much cobbling something together yourself from the things that you've learned or the documents you have there's nothing out there that's specifically for fuel haulers yeah you might be able to find a reference book or something but it's not really education material or one course yeah there might be one so there may be a TD, tdg course for fuel haulers that you can find elsewhere or it may be a an injury prevention for tankers you know one company might have it, but that's why we're trying to build the library is that our target market wants to have the same stuff that everybody, you know, that larger companies have, but they don't have, they don't have the same amount of yeah. um, ability to do it. Well, I've noticed that there is a lot of specialization. So even in the industry or in training in the industry, right, right, but not so much reflected in training. And there are a lot of yeah, when we talk about tanker, there are a lot of people that have got a lot of experience but have never done any tanker. Uh, or a lot of people that have a lot of experience but have never done flatbed. 
You know, there's that kind of thing that you see. And it's definitely with the drivers, but uh, on the risk management side and even on like the insurance side, there's a lot of people that kind of have insurance through kind of a a generalized insurance uh, provider. And that would be the normal place you would go is, hey, can you help me improve my risk? Talk to the risk consultants for the insurance uh, agent or the insurer. And a lot of them don't have a lot of experience in those specialized areas either. And I think even though it's specialized, it's not. It's just a different it's a different um, piece of equipment and you have to have training on you or what you want to be, you know, to really mitigate your risk. You want training for your specific equipment. And if you look at any other industry, if you have a specific type of equipment, like a specific type of saw and, you know, you have safety procedures for all saws, but you want if you're using a jigsaw rather than a, a rather than a bandsaw, there are different there are different things that are dangerous. There are different things that you want to point out. So it's the same with same with vehicles. Like we have different types of equipment. So let's have some different types of training. And I agree, like the generic training that you get from insurance companies that provide it for free, they're not going to be in, you know, super detail about your specific equipment. They're going to be doing kind of that, you know, here's your best practices for defensive driving or whatever defensive driving, you know, thing that a jingle they do. Well, I know I know where they're coming from and and we have certainly got some partners that do that and I know why they're providing it and not to necessarily disparage the stuff that they're doing because their position is generally, every time I talk to them, the sentiment is the same thing. Oh, please just do something. (laughs) (laughs) So that free stuff that they're providing is that, you know, it's something. It's something, right. Yes, and they'll be the first to say, that, yeah, this is not a comprehensive program, but it's better than nothing, and right now you're doing nothing. Oh, absolutely. No, I was not. So that's kind of a stepping stone, yes, right? Yes, I was not trying to disparage it. I was just saying that you can't rely on just that. It's only a starting point. It's not going to get you where you need to go. It is. I think they're hoping that it's the gateway drug. Yes. Get you used to doing something, and then you can move into something yeah. more comprehensive from there. Because it's hard. It's hard to do. It's And especially because nothing's written down about it. It's very difficult to do some of these tanker courses because it's like, okay, where's the person I can interview? Because I, it's like nothing. Mm-hmm. And what I also thought was interesting is how simple it is. It, like the first thing that we were asked to do was tanker injury. Mm-hmm. And it was so so simple yeah. because it's really injury prevention for the general population of everybody is like, don't trip on things. Don't fall over. Like don't have things lying around in the middle of the floor. Don't have wet spots. Don't have, you know, be careful when you're climbing up and down. Don't fall off a ladder. Yeah. When you're lifting something up, like don't lift with your back, lift with your legs Mm -hmm. and that kind of thing. But for a tanker, really the difference is don't trip over the hoses mm-hmm. and be careful of your hose, of the hoses. Be careful taking them out. Be careful putting them in. Be careful when they're on the ground. Be careful. Just be careful and be careful climbing up the ladder. Mm-hmm. And a general injury course, you could extrapolate that information and apply it to tanker. But it's so much better when someone just sees a tanker and says, sees the hose and go, yeah, watch out for those. Mm-hmm. Like that's that's the training that you want. You don't want the, you know, somebody tripping over a box and say, see that? Do that with hoses. Yeah. That's not going to be. It's not in context. Yeah, exactly. Right. Which is the whole point of the way we build courses is to give those people the context, the show them what uh, it looks like in in the source or in their day as they're going through things. 
they can experience it. Yeah. So I'm I'm happy to do specialized courses. It's interesting. It, it, it kind of gives me a, a much better sense of what people go through. I would love to do some livestock stuff. Hmm. Well, over the past couple of years, you've done a bunch of things for auto haulers. You're doing some tanker things now. Uh, livestock might be next. Mm-hmm. Um, the auto hauler, there's, I want to, I need to do an injury prevention for auto haulers too, because it's the, again, it's different. Mm-hmm. The stuff you can trip over is different. Um, I can't remember, but there are things that, I think the things that are out the back uh, that where you, I can't remember what they're called, but you lower them down so you can drive the cars onto them. Mm-hmm. Apparently that's a tripping hazard too. I can see that. Yeah. So that kind of thing. Hmm. Very interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, with that, I think uh, we can wrap up this episode and get back to our interviews. No. Oh, wait, actually, I should be. Yeah. Yes. Oh, looking forward to get back to interviews or get back to reviewing all the interview notes. I have one, a Friday night one. Yeah, I've got a I've got some in this afternoon as well. To get to West out. Coast people. <sighs> I know. No. West Coast people. Central Oregon. Yep. I'm doing. So if you're listening, I'm just taking you. I'm, I'm, I'm joking. <laughs> Okay, well, I think that will do us. So thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks. Have a great day. 